We are first Sunday of the month. We're doing a series called Year of Rejoicing, uh, taking a break from 1 Samuel and talking about all the reasons God gives us to be rejoicing, even now in this life, and rejoicing in what He's promised to come. Last month, uh, the year, the, the, the joy, it got a little bit heavy uh, for some reason. So this week, I just, or this month, I decided to make up for that by doing just an all-out gospel fest. So if you would please stand out of respect uh, for the hearing of God's Word as God speaks to us through Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. This is what God really thinks about us. Listen. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, and shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. For the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, and you shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make your renown and I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for uh, just straight out passages of your overwhelming love for us. You're rejoicing over us, Lord. We, Father, we tend to uh, become corrupt in our thinking about how you think about us for myriad reasons. And so we pray that today, Lord, you would shake us of that uh, and that you would impress upon us just how much you truly love us so that as we rest in that, we might glorify you. Give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promise us that you will beautify your afflicted ones, Lord. We pray that you would do that through this word to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Uh, in, In the Harry Potter series, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, the main character, Harry Potter, uh, his parents have been killed and he has to go and live with his aunt and uncle, uh, Vernon and Petunia Dursley. Uh, and they do not have a lot of love for Harry. They accept him, they give him food, and they give him a room to sleep in underneath the stairs. He's allowed to be there, he's accepted, he's part of the family, but it's, he, they make it obvious to him at every opportunity that he's pretty much just tolerated but not really loved. Now, how many of you, get honest, how many of you, at least sometimes, think uh, that that's what God thinks about you? (laughs) 
show of hands. I'm going to get super honest. Maybe it's not that bad. Maybe, maybe, maybe you feel more than just tolerated, but still you go through periods of time when you're convinced that oh, God loves you, but he's definitely looking at you sideways. And at least, he's just at least a little bit perpetually disappointed in you. Yeah? I, I feel that. I used to be, a, I was at one time part of a church. Some of us in this room were part of this church where pastor used to teach that our, obedient, our, that our salvation wasn't based on our obedience to Christ, but our rewards in heaven were, and God's attitude towards us, his love for us was based on really how obedient we were. And so what we were shooting for was to die and go to heaven and have Jesus meet us with a big old giant bear hug saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. But if you were like struggling, if you weren't living this victorious Christian life, when you got to heaven, Jesus, he would say this, Jesus might look at you and say, oh, it's you. Yeah, I guess you can come in. <laughs> I had people come to me. I was a, a pastor at that church, unfortunately. And people come to me afterwards and say, are you saying there's like a ghetto heaven? And I, 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 I'll get to go to heaven, but because I'm struggling so hard, I have to go to ghetto heaven. But the people who are really victorious, they get to go to like Rancho Santa Fe heaven. <laughs> Be honest, man. How many times do we think? How often do we think like that? How often do we think that God's love for us is conditioned upon our performance? Even if we are convinced that our ultimate salvation doesn't rest in that, we still think that God loves us based on how obedient we are, how victorious we are over our sin, how sanctified we are. I picked this passage today purposely to try to beat that notion out of our heads, at least for today. It'll probably be back tomorrow morning, (laughs) but maybe a little bit less. For today, I want to focus in on what God really thinks about us all the time so that next time you're tempted to think that God has disappointed in you and your lack of progress, you might remember, we would remember that God rejoices in us because His love compels him to save us so we should rejoice in him god rejoices in us uh, because his love compels him to save us and so we should rejoice in him let's look at that one part at a time god rejoices in us i had i uh, most of you know i spent the first half of my life pursuing uh heavy metal fame as a musician in heavy metal bands, which is why I appreciated that rendition of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel so much, probably. Uh, I spent the first half of my life pursuing that dream, so I didn't, God didn't save me till I was 38, I didn't uh, end up getting married until early 40s, and I didn't have my first children, I didn't have my first child until I was 45. Uh, and... Um, as soon as I had started having kids, I was so, maybe it was because I was older, I was just felt so grateful. I was so enraptured 
by my children that I would just be spontaneously make up children's songs and sing over them. All kind of songs for my kids that it would just, just come out of me. Out of nowhere, I was so overjoyed with them that I would just sit, just songs would come out of me and I would sing these songs over them. And Nisa, Nisa used to kid me. She'd be all happy. Did you ever think that all those vocal lessons and all that hours and hours of countless rehearsals would culminate in sleepy time for little bears? <laughs> and I would say no. No, but I wouldn't trade it uh, for, the, for the biggest world tour. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Now, how many, how many of you, honest, believe that that level of joy, that level of rejoicing, that level of love is God's constant attitude towards you. Do you believe that? If I said that? Listen, listen to what it says. Listen to what this says. Verse 17. It says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Listen to what that means. The rejoice, he will rejoice over you with gladness means the rejoice there is a joy that comes from some kind of success that produces spontaneous laughter. Mirth, as they used to say back in the day. That's the kind of joy that's describing. Uh, he will quiet you by his love. Sometimes my kids get so upset and so anxious that the only thing we can do for them is just sit them on our laps and hold them and just love them and, and, and rub their back and, until they quiet. Our love quiets them in the same way God is stilling the agonizing voices in our heads through his presence when we sit with him. And this one, he will exult over you with loud singing. This is my favorite one. The, the Hebrew root of this exult here, it, was, it, 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 it originally meant to circle around. And so it's really a picture of, of an active um, uh, circling around shouting praises. The word's almost always used for us shouting praises to God, but here it's used about God shouting praises over us. It's really, it's a picture. A lot of theologians think this is a picture of an ancient Near Eastern wedding procession where everyone is just shouting and overjoyed with the wedding. Think about, think about your wedding day for those of us who are married. Not necessarily the intervening years where reality sets in and you realize that it's about sanctification, but the wedding day itself and the joy you experience. In our wedding Nisa and my wedding, we felt there was almost uh, like a, uh, a transcendent fog of joy and the presence of the Spirit that had settled over us on that day. To where when, I first, when I saw Nisa the first time, she would laughed in this way that I've never seen before. It was like almost like bubbles of joy emanating from her. And I felt the same way. That... That's the kind of joy that God feels about you right now, no matter what happened yesterday. That is his constant 
expression of love and joy and rejoicing over his children. Now notice this says, this, all this comes after the Lord God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. So this says, that, that shows us that this is God's attitude towards those people whom he has saved. He saved us, now his attitude is that. That is his attitude towards us. This is what, uh, and this is such a hard truth for our uh, performance-based, meritocracy-minded minds to grasp onto, but it's exactly what Paul says in Romans too. Paul says, for if we were enemies, if while we were enemies, God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, God died for us while we were his enemy, if that's true, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Even more blessing and joy and rejoicing and love is showered over us. Also in 8, 32, he, didn't, he who did not spare his own son gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What is Paul saying there? Same thing. So hard for us to grasp because we think, I'm such a sinner. How could God possibly love me? But that thought, what that thought betrays is that we really believe that God delights in us because we are resourceful, because we are strong, because we're holy. But that's not true. That is not true. I know it's hard to believe, but that's not why God loves us. He rejoices over us because he loves us, because he's chosen to love us. And it's his love is the thing that makes us lovely. Second point. Because his love compels him to save us. So what, is that? what does that even mean? What does it mean for God to love us? How deep is that? How strong is that? Um, in, you know, in theology we have that we talk about God being... Uh, God cannot be compelled to do anything by any external force. God is so strong, so powerful, so in control that it is, it, nothing is, is able to compel him to do anything he does not want to do. Nothing can force him to do anything. But that doesn't mean that he can't be compelled by internal, his nature. We talk all the time about God is compelled by his justice, because he is just, he must judge sin. And I remember distinctly one day in a theology class at school, it hit me. I was like, well, wait a minute. If that's true, if God's, if God's justice compels him to judge sin, he can't just forgive sin, he must judge it. Doesn't that also mean that his character attribute of love is what compelled him to come and sacrifice himself for us. Doesn't that mean his love compelled him to save us? And my theology professor, very detail-oriented guy, said, yes, that's true. So, listen to what it says. Listen to what it says. Verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. 
the King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst and you shall never again fear evil. Who are we talking about here? Look at the clues. It says a little bit before that that this is a mighty one who will save. Mighty one there is a, a term. Uh, it means really warrior or hero or a champion who saves. It means really to liberate through a victory. Uh, in the context like a military victory. Think something like, oh, David and Goliath. Where David liberated all of God's people by defeating Goliath. Somebody like that. Uh, and it says that this person is the king of Israel, who also happens to be Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty. And he also happens to be in their midst, meaning present with them in some way. And what does this guy do? Verse 15, he clears away our enemies. 19, he deals with our oppressors. Uh, again, he saves, which means to deliver from death. And he does that for who? Not the strong and the rich and the powerful and the wise. He does it for the lame and for the outcast, for the sinner, for the people who need it. And he changes their shame into praise and renown. How does he do it? How will he do that? It says he will do that by taking away the judgments against you. Judgments, mishpat, God's righteous judgments against us for our sins. Anybody want to take a wild guess who we're talking about here at this point? Let's keep going. And how might God take away his own righteous judgments against us? As I said a minute ago, he cannot just forgive sin because that would make him unrighteous. If there was someone who was a murderer that came before a judge and the judge said, I'm just going to forgive you because I think you're a good guy, that would not be a just judge. To be just, the judge would have to punish that crime. Same for everybody, same for us. And so how, is it, how would this person possibly take away God's righteous judgments against us? He can't just forgive sin, but he could if love compelled him. He could figure out some way to take his own judgments upon himself. He could figure out some way to be sentenced for our own crime. He could be, figure out some way to be punished for our transgressions. Listen, listen to what the author of Hebrews says about Jesus. He says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand, of the throne of God. That joy right there is the same joy we just talked about from verse 14. It is the joy over some success that produces spontaneous laughter. The cross was the success that Jesus won again at the victory that Jesus won to win us that caused him to rejoice so much that he it's described as bursting forth an overwhelming, bubbling joy of laughter. 
And there's also a trade-off in there. It says that he took our shame, the judgment of our sin, and he exchanged it for his joy. He took our shame, he gave us his joy. Now, listen, this is, this is the point I want to make. When um, I talk a couple of times about our second child, Victoria, when Nisa was pregnant with our second child, Victoria, it's a really difficult pregnancy, and it ended up costing her health issues that continue on to this day through that pregnancy. Now, do you think that she made that desperate sacrifice for our daughter that she still, and, and the suffering still remains with her, do you think that that makes her love Victoria less? No. Oh, no. <laughs> like, like any parent who has sacrificed in any way for a child, those sacrifices cause you to love that child even more. And so this is what this is, what this is all saying. It's saying... What this means is is that God's love for us compelled him to come and make that sacrifice and then the sacrifice itself compels him to love us even more. Which means, and that's where it hits us because God's love for us can be seriously uncomfortable. That level of love and rejoicing over us because we know. There used to be this man that um, I used to know named John Bound. And when I was first getting sober, <laughs> I had just come out of a life of drug addiction and serious crime and I knew exactly who I was. This man would come up to me every week and say, Rob, we love you. And it would make my heart cringe. I was so uncomfortable, I wanted to get away from him. And he kept saying it every week. He kept saying it week after week. And it finally kind of sunk in that he didn't love me because of who I was. He loved me because of who he was. He was a guy who was overflowing with love so much that he loved me for the joy of loving me. And that's a picture of what God is doing with us. He loves us so much for the joy of it. He, he wanted that rejoicing so badly that he endured the cross. He endured the incarnation. He endured coming and living among us and suffering everything that we suffer so that he could experience that joy of loving us. God loves us. God loves you not because of who you are. He loves you because of who he is. And after time, after a while, after years of being around John Bound and having him say, eventually it wasn't so uncomfortable anymore and it felt good. And his, his love for me changed me. It helped me to understand that I could be loved. And God does the same thing. His love for us is what makes us lovely. And listen, look, that is the foundation 
of our experience with God. Whenever, listen, whenever I am up here and I encourage you to pursue holiness with everything you've got, that's because I sincerely believe and I know, and the Bible says, that the pursuit of God and of holiness is what brings freedom and liberation and flourishing in human life. And I desperately want that for you. I want that for me. That doesn't mean that I'm like ahead of the pack in that. I'm struggling with everybody else. But I do one thing. I don't look behind. I move forward to the upward call of Christ because I want that life. But the foundation, none of that changes God's attitude. None of that makes God love me more. None of that makes God love you more. God is even now, no matter where you're at, singing songs of exultation over you because he is so overwhelmed with joy and love for you that he breaks out in song. That's our foundation in Christ. And that is why we should rejoice in him. Last, last part. So what does that exactly mean? This might get a little uncomfortable too, for especially you Presbyterians. What exactly is God calling us to do here? What, how should we respond? This is what it says. Verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Does that sound... Dignified, restrained. <laughs> what, what does it mean to rejoice and exalt? Look, we did in the very first in this series, we look, took a look at the rejoice in the Greek, which meant, which means, it means to experience a state of great joy and gladness, often involving verbal expressions and appropriate body movement. That's the Greek dictionary, folks. I didn't make that up. Straight out of the Greek, okay? Uh, and we also said, though, that, look, look, if you're one of those brothers or sisters who uh, on the inside are exploding with Holy Spirit joy and power, but on the outside you are still waters, then get down with your bad self. That's just fine, as long as you don't have a critical spirit towards people who are expressive, and vice versa. If someone is still waters, but they are rejoicing inside, we don't want to and should not have a critical spirit towards them. It seems that in that word rejoice, the text is suggesting a more holistic style of worship. But it gets worse. <laughs> Listen to what exalt means. This, this is what exalt, the Hebrew uh, we're translating, the translators use the word exult uh, to translate the Hebrew term here. Do you know what exult means? I bet if we asked everybody, nine out of ten people would not know what exult with a U means. I think we think it's like similar to exalt, which is praise, but it's not. It's from, it's from an old Latin word which, me, which, is, uh, which is ex saltere, and saltation, saltation is actually an old English word that means, you ready for this? Leaping and dancing. <laughs> it means being so joyful that you get up, X, and leap and dance around. Exaltation. Exaltation. 
Uh, it means to be so overwhelmed with joy that you just got to get up and dance. Amen? Think about King David. King David's bringing the ark into Jerusalem. He's so overjoyed with that that he cannot help himself but jump and dance and leap in the air and shout praises to God and the dignified people trip on him. His own wife trips on him. You know what he says to her? He says, I will celebrate before the Lord. Celebrate. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet even more contemptible than this. Exult is a joy volcano. (laughs) What am I saying? Now, I'm not saying, am I saying that we should all jump up and dance in the middle of worship? No, I'm not saying that. Maybe, a little bit. <laughs> listen, listen to Psalm 149. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody with him with tambourine and lyre, for the Lord takes pleasure in his people. God's rejoicing over us. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult you in glory. Let them sing for joy. That's talking about worship. Look, I'm not saying we should all jump and run the aisles and and dance necessarily. But what I am saying is what I am saying is this. <laughs> what I am saying is this. Uh, there is a uh, reformed, theolog- uh, reformed theologian that I'm, I'm friends with from back east, and he told me in a conversation one day, he said, Psalm 22 is the last psalm of lament quoted in the New Testament, and he believes that this had far-reaching implications for our worship. In other words, Psalm 22 is the, is the Old Testament depiction of Jesus on the cross being separated from the Father for us. It starts out by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which are Jesus' words on the cross. He might have quoted the whole thing and we got the shorthand. Hard to say, but he's saying that after that crucif- the crucifixion, There's no more psalms of lament recorded in the New Testament, which means uh, that there is a time for serious reflection and somber moments when we read the law, when we, when, we, when we hear the law over ourselves, when we confess our sins. Those are times in worship that should be serious and somber. Um, uh, but it says that the thrust of New Testament worship and the general demeanor of our lives should be characterized by an overflowing joy from the knowledge of God's love for us that is so deep and so wide and so overwhelming and overpowering that we should be compelled (laughs) to sing, to shout, to rejoice, and to exult in the Lord. That's what God wants for us. He wants us to be that joyful in who he is and what he's done. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beauty of this word that you've given us today. How much you love us. How that doesn't change from day to day based on what we do. Uh, That your love for us compelled you 
to sacrifice yourself, to die for us, and that your death, your suffering for us compels you to love us even more, and that you are even now standing over us no matter how much we may be struggling, singing songs of exaltation over us for the joy that you feel because we are your children. And you are in the midst of that lovingly disciplining us, correcting us, but never from anger, always from that deep-seated sense of love and rejoicing. Lord, we pray that you would help seal that in our minds. Help us to not forget that Monday morning when we wake up and say, God loves me based on what I do. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to remember all through this week that you love us because of who you are, not because of who we are. And it is your love that you promise to be steadfast that will bring us completely and fully into the light of salvation. And let us rejoice in that, Jesus. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.